0: Sentire Media Hello everyone, and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 30, Saxons, Saracens, Sardinia. Well, here we are at episode 30, still alive and kicking. Not only that, we also have a Patreon and PayPal member-only sister podcast, News Cappuccino, bar talk on various topics from an Italian point of view, but not only. Last week, we spoke about the Italian school system. Before that, it was Starbucks coming to Italy. And if you want to get on board for this week, we're going to talk about Italian food versus American and English food in the episode Italian Food versus Linda Robertson's Donuts. I'm really pleased and a little surprised to have gotten this far. And it's all thanks to you listeners with your great support from those who review on iTunes to those who write in, who like the Facebook page, who follow us on Twitter and, of course, our small but growing band of patrons and PayPal supporters. Grazie, grazie, grazie. Thank you very much. As I said, for the Twitterers among you, A History of Italy is now also on Twitter with at A History of Italy. For those of you wondering how far we have to go, don't be fooled by the fact that we have already covered more than 500 years. Let me give you an indication. The main thread for this podcast is Indro Montanelli's History of Italy, which in its most recent edition is composed of 22 volumes. Then, for each period I look at least a couple of other sources, starting from my old school and university books and rounding out with raids on the public library. Well, Of 22 volumes of the Montanelli collection, we are currently at the start of volume 2, so plenty more to go. Anyway, back to our old narrative. In the last episode, we saw how Henry II of Germany was forced to deal with an attempt by Arduin of Ivrea to hold on to the crown of the Kingdom of Italy which was actually only northern Italy. Once he had sorted Arduin out, Henry managed to get himself crowned Holy Roman Emperor by accepting a sort of fait complais of Rome being in the hands of one of the two branches of the Crescenzi family, along with the Tuscolo family, who in turn made an effort to keep the emperor happy. We ended up the episode by mentioning the ever-impending threat of the Saracens, whose pirate incursions were reaching a peak. For example, in 1002, Benevento had been forced to pay a tribute, and Pisa had been sacked in 1004 and in 1005. We must add here that Pisa then got their own back and defeated the Saracens in a naval battle. Let's take a moment to consider the wording there. Pisa defeated the Saracens not an empire not a kingdom not a march or a dukedom the city of Pisa we're getting very close to something that in the Middle Ages was very distinctly Italian on the eastern side of the boot the city of Bari was also in trouble when the Saracens attacked Bari was still under the Byzantine Empire but the emperor Basileus II was busy fighting the Bulgars and it was only the intervention of Venice that avoided another Arab occupation of the city. Again, the intervention of Venice, a city. The greatest blow came in 1015 when the Arabs managed to occupy the city of Luni in northern Tuscany, just south of La Spezia. What exactly was behind this increase in Saracen activity? Well, the Arabs who took control of the city of Luni weren't from Sicily, as had been the case until that point in time, but from Spain. Indeed, within the Arab forces in Spain, there had been a power shift, and power now lay with Ibn Abd allah who ruled over the caliphate of Denia between Alicante and Valencia. From there, he had invaded the Balears, and that was the perfect starting point to then head for the islands of Corsica and Sardinia, and then head for the Italian mainland. This prompted the Italian forces to ally in a coalition that included Pisa, Genova, Duke Ranieri of Tusha, Tuscany, Adalbert II Obertengo, and the Pope. The listeners who haven't been completely confused and thrown off by the whirlwind succession of popes may remember that the pope at the time was Benedict Eighth, who wasn't the best of popes, but was a pretty good general, a fact that, in this particular case, came in quite handy. The combined naval forces of Pisa and Genoa were able to defeat the Saracen fleet around the Strait of Messina, between the mainland and Sicily, and troops were landed on the island of Sardinia to cut off the Arab retreat. The city of Luni was liberated, doing wonders for the reputation of the members of the coalition, the Pope in particular. It was at this point, possibly, that the Pope assigned the control of Sardinia to Pisa. Not that he had actually had control in the first place, and not that the Pisans could actually waltz in and take control for another couple of centuries, but, you know, it's a bit like me telling a friend of mine that they can have my neighbour's house while they're still in there. Since we've scandalously overlooked Sardinia for almost a whole podcast, and way back in spring I had promised listener Mandy B that I would talk a little more about Sardinia, sorry Mandy for being so late, now could be a good time to have a look over there. So, Sardinia had been reconquered by the Eastern Roman Empire from the Vandals in the 6th century and had since been under Byzantine rule. However, like other places in Italy, such as Naples, Apulia, Calabria and Venice, the distance from Constantinople meant that these areas grew increasingly independent. Indeed, it is not known exactly when, but the island of Sardinia, gradually passed from the Byzantine rule to that of the Judicati, mainly as a consequence of the increasing Saracen raids that started in the early eighth century, when Byzantium had no real power to protect the island. The Judicati were basically independent kingdoms, or better judgedoms, because the ruler of each was known as a judice, a judge, or Iudiches in Sardinian. There were four of these giudicati, Gallura in the northeast, Logudoro in the northwest, Arborea on the central western side, and Calari later to become Cagliari in the south. They represent a very interesting example of alternative models of state to the feudal system. Indeed, They were influenced by the Byzantine origin, but with some local peculiarities. They had a rather modern organisation, with the land not owned by the sovereign, but by the people, who actually had a sort of early form of parliament, when the rest of Europe would have scoffed at the idea. They had local assemblies, called Coronas de Curatorias, that would then send representatives to the highest parliament of the Judicato, the Corona del Logu. The rulers, the Judice, ruled with the Banus Consensus, the consensus of the people, that could actually be withdrawn, and it was the legal right of the Corona del Logu not only to depose a ruler who betrayed the trust of the people, but also to have him or her executed. I say her because a few of the most important rulers in the history of the Giudicati were women, such as the judges or Judicatessa Eleanor of Arborea in the mid-14th century. I must specify, however, that when I say the trust of the people, as is usually the case in human history, I meant the trust mostly of the rich people. Anyway, as I said, we had this banus consensus which meant that the people could not only depose, but actually legally execute the ruler. That would make you really afraid of an opinion poll. The level of independence from Byzantium of the Judicati ebbed and flowed according to the power of the eastern emperors to exercise influence over the island. We know that in the 720s, the Lombard king Lutprand was negotiating directly with one of the Judicati to take the remains of St. Augustine to the mainland to keep it safe from raiding parties. Then, a mission sent to Louis the Pious in the early 800s meant that the Giudicati were also in good relations with the Franks. Another important piece of evidence is a letter from Pope Leo in 851 directly to the Giudicati asking for help to defend Rome and for wool. It is with the papal letters and diplomatic documents that we are able to reconstruct part of the murky history of the Judicati since their own written documents didn't come along until later. And when they did, very interestingly, they were written in Sardinian rather than Latin or Greek. From these we can understand that the connection to Byzantium was almost completely severed by the end of the ninth century. The borders of the four Giudicati were fixed to a certain extent. The area at the centre, where all four territories met, was called the Barbaja, which was an internal, wild and rugged mountainous area, and both the terrain and the shepherding people there were difficult to govern. So the influence of the four Giudicati over this part of the land and its people varied. The farmers in the four judicati had to work the land for their lord called Donnu for four out of the six working days and the other two were free to work and support their families and try and accumulate the wealth needed to buy their freedom and become Libertados, a condition that around a third of the population were in at the time we are speaking of. Estimates put the total number at around 300,000 people. By the time of Eleonora of Arborea, in the early 15th century, it seems that almost all of the inhabitants of her giudicato were free. The rulers, the giudici, were to guarantee the collective balance of well-being of society, and on an administrative level, they did this using state level as well as local bureaucratic structures to run the land. We've already mentioned that the state lands, the Rennu belonged to the people with the lands belonging specifically to the Judici being called the Peculiares. The rulers were obviously wealthy landowners who were required to designate their heir while they were still alive to avoid succession issues. As was the case in much of the medieval world, one of the main tasks of the ruler was to physically protect their subjects, so the military aspect was important. The regular troops were composed of free citizens who would serve for a while and then be rotated out and substituted by others so that the work in the fields and the workshops wasn't left unattended. These troops, which usually made up the infantry, the birudos, were joined by the Buyaquesos, professional soldiers who were the Sardinian version of the Continental Knights. The soldiers, as well as the usual sword, chainmail and helmet, had a formidable Sardinian birudu, a sort of mix between a cutting and throwing weapon, similar to a javelin with a nasty curved blade on one side and a heavy metal point that could pierce armour or shields on the other. They also had the leper, a sort of shimitar, which was actually in a smaller version still in use up to the 19th century. The Sardinians were also well known for their very effective longbow at that time, and then later also crossbows. On a local level, administration was left to the local representatives, called curatores, who presided over the curatoria. These officials held office for a limited time, and would oversee the collection of taxes, legal matters, and public safety, such as policing and firefighting. These curatarias were also electoral districts that would elect the representatives that would then go to the Corona del Logo, which, if you remember, was sort of a proto-parliament on a national level. The interesting thing was that the borders of these districts were not fixed, changing with a changing population. So as one area grew in population, so would its borders. This maintained a balance also in the electoral system and can be seen as an early form of census units. With regard to land ownership, only the area just outside the inhabited village were fenced off and considered private. The other areas, known as the Su Fundamento, were public and could be used according to the needs of the community. At the height of the age of the Judicati in the 11th century, the period we're talking about, these settlements reached around 800, but would fall drastically to around 360 in the 14th century with the arrival of the plague. There's a lot more we could say about this fascinating period in Sardinian history, but I think that's enough to give you a general idea and get you curious about learning more. So off you go. Go and learn more about the Sardinian giudicati the whole digression started with the Pisan and Genoese landing troops on the island and with the Pope donating the land to the two cities. With the Giudicati still going strong, that wasn't going to happen. But now that Sardinia was on the radar of what would become the great maritime republics, you could say that the end was now in sight. Well, as always, thanks very much to everyone for listening thanks in particular to my little band of Patreon donors although it may still be a bit early because there's only about a dozen of us, it may be time to start thinking about different Patreon levels I had initially thought of cities, Rome level, Florence level, Venice level but then Stephen Guerra over at the History of the Papacy already does that so I didn't want to be a copycat so how about famous people levels So my idea is that the top level is the Machiavelli level. The next level down is Da Vinci. Then we have Garibaldi and Fellini. We have a good mix of leaders, artists, scientists and writers there. But anyway, as I said at the very beginning, let's do this project together. So if you have any other ideas, even if you're not a Patreon supporter, about how to divide the levels, I'd love to hear them. For the moment, let me thank my Federico Fellini-level patrons, Jeff, Sean, Roberta, and Preston. Then, my Garibaldi-level donor, Benjamin. My Da Vinci-level donors, Shelby, Jay, Vincent, Steve, and Chris. And my Machiavelli-level donor, Sen. Thanks very much to everyone. Remember that if you want to get in touch with comments, questions, now's the time after maybe 30 episodes, or just to say hello, you can write to hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media, which now includes also Twitter as well as Facebook. And if you're feeling generous, remember you can donate on PayPal, become a Patreon donor, Or leave a review on iTunes. Once again, thanks very much to everyone for listening. And until next time, Arrivederci.
1: And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com and find out how to submit your show.